Hello, wise and wicked friends. Today, we are looking into the Osage Murders, the horrendous chapter of American history which inspired the best-selling novel and upcoming film, The Killers of the Flower Moon. This story looks at how the Osage became a target for schemes and murders and how, to this day, a lot is still unknown. and welcome to the wise and the wicked my name is KJ I have started this podcast as a means to educate myself and whoever is listening about different historical facts and figures which you may or may not have heard of this means we look at all things crime history the problematic ones and the problem solvers this week we are looking into the Osage murders also known as the Osage reign of terror this story was the story behind the best-selling novel The Killing of the Flower Moon by David Gran, which I'm sure you are aware is a film by Martin Scorsese, which is coming out later this month in Ireland. It's coming out later this month. I think it's out elsewhere already. So I thought it'd be a good time to do a deep dive into the story that inspired it before going to see it on the big screen. So with that in mind, I must warn you, there's a lot of spoilers here. So if you don't want the film to be ruined... Maybe listen to this after you've seen it. So before we jump in, just a bit of a disclaimer on today's story. We will be discussing murder, crime scenes and graphic descriptions. So listener discretion is advised. And as usual, I'm going to give you a bit of context, a bit of backstory before we hop in to the main part of the story. There is a lot going on here, so I tried to make it as easy to follow as possible. Please bear with me. So let's get cracking. The Osage Reign of Terror is a chapter in American history that spans from 1921 to 1926. So before that, to give you some context on the Osage themselves, the Osage are a Native American tribe. They originally resided in the Ohio Valley and the Osage were known for being very skilled hunters and warriors. And in the early 18th and 19th century, they actually played a huge role in the fur trade. For centuries, Native Americans were forced off their ancestral lands and moved elsewhere. Unfortunately, the Osage tribe were no exception. In the early 19th century, they were forcibly removed from their ancestral lands in the Ohio Valley, and they were moved to a reservation in Kansas. Then, later in 1870s, they sold this land and were driven to Oklahoma, which was Up until 1866, the lands belonged to the Cherokee. This land was huge, and like a lot of the reservations that the Native Americans were moved to, it was mostly barren nothingness. This reservation itself was about a million and a half acres in size, and was mostly hilly, and parts of it were thickly wooded, therefore making it very unsuitable for any sort of agriculture. Osage County is made up of smaller towns, one of which is Greyhorse, which was the oldest settlement and then it has some outposts so two of these are Fairfax and Pawhuska. When the Osage first moved to this reservation in Oklahoma they made an agreement with the US government which stated that they owned this land so they could no longer be moved. 
Therefore, they owned everything above and below the land, and then they would own any minerals such as oil, gas and coal that could be gained from this land. Of course, the government at the time thought this land was of no real value, and therefore they signed this agreement. Decades later, it was realised that this land provided a wealth of oil, and thanks to the agreement, this oil belonged to the Osage. The agreement was signed meant that each member of the tribe would receive what was called a head right, which was a share of the mineral trust. Now the government's hands were tied as they could no longer blatantly violate them and forcibly remove them from their land. They would have to rent the land off the Osage to get this oil. This resulted in them becoming incredibly wealthy. This money was distributed throughout all of the members of the tribe. And compared to their fellow Native Americans, they lived a completely different lifestyle. And even compared to well-off white people, their wealth was massive. During this time, the Osage were considered the wealthiest county per capita in the world. This newfound wealth that the Osage were experiencing made their neighbouring communities green with envy. According to a New Yorker post at the time, the public had become transfixed by the tribe's prosperity, which belied images of American Indians that could be traced back to the brutal first contact with whites. The original sin from the country was born. Various magazines at the time would tantalise their readers with stories of the Red Millionaires. Of course, though, there was a loophole found so that the white man could still benefit. Most of the members of the Osage tribe were deemed incompetent to deal with their level of wealth. They were seen, unfortunately and incorrectly, as uneducated and ignorant. And therefore, the US government assigned overseers to do just that, oversee their expenses. Most of these overseers were, of course, white men. This meant that most of the tribe could not spend their own money freely, and their own money was beyond their control. A lot of these overseers would actually marry into Osage families. And for a time, this was actually seen as a good thing because if your overseer was your spouse, you did have more access to your own money. As well as overseers, the government also assigned protectors. These were to, quote, protect native interests. The main goals of both the overseers and the protectors were to help Native American tribes to assimilate into the new American culture. They wanted to protect the native land and its resources, and they wanted to ensure that federal policies were being enforced within the tribe. But the main area we're looking at today is their supervision of tribal affairs, because as we said earlier, the Osage people were wrongly deemed incapable of managing their own affairs. One such protector that we'll be looking at in detail today is a man named William Hale. So he's a huge character in the book of The Killing of the Flower Moon and of the film. And in the film, he is played by Robert De Niro. He was known as the king of the Osage Hills, a very, very wealthy, very powerful man with many powerful connections. He was known as a very neat dresser with a military air. He would give a lot of money to the local schools and hospitals and even acted as a deputy sheriff in Fairfax. He also controlled a bank in Fairfax and he even owned his old stable of fine horses. Oh, and he also recited poetry. He called himself a true friend to the Osage. William Hale had two nephews. He was essentially a father figure to these two nephews and they were incredibly close and his nephews were incredibly loyal to him. 
they were brothers Brian and Ernest Burkhart. Ernest Burkhart is another person who's a big character in today's story. He is played by Leonardo DiCaprio in the movie. Ernest married a member of the Osage tribe called Molly. Ernest would run errands for his uncle and which included driving and delivering things and this is how he met Molly. He would actually drive her around the town. Ernest was known for being very handsome and Gran in his book explains he had a tendency to drink moonshine and play poker with men of ill repute but beneath his roughness seemed to be a tenderness and a trace of insecurity. Molly fell madly in love with him. They had two children together and Molly considered herself very lucky. She also considered William Hale a mighty good friend. So our story begins in 1921 with Molly and her family at the centre. Molly had three sisters and a wonderful mother, Lizzie Q. The youngest of the sisters, Minnie, died very, very suddenly at the age of 27 due to what was called a peculiar wasting illness. Molly's sister Rita was married to an Osage man called Bill Smith and the eldest sister Anna was recently divorced. So Anna was living her quintessential 1920s flapper lifestyle. With her money she went shopping, she went partying, she would go out all night, dance all night, hang out with her mates and she was a big fan of bootleg liquor. Now keep in mind this is the early 1920s, this is prohibition times, all the liquor was bootleg liquor. And it is also said that Anna sometimes dated Ernest's brother, Brian Burkhart. On the 24th of May, 1921, Molly was living in Greyhorse at this time and had began to fear something had happened to her sister, Anna. Although Molly knew she would likely be all night, out all night partying with her friends and she usually came back eventually, something told Molly that this time was different. One night passed and then another and still no sign of Anna. Three days later, Molly was very, very concerned and herself and Ernest went around the town to ask questions to see if anybody had seen Anna. After a week of the disappearance of Anna Brown, an oil worker was working just outside of downtown Paul Huska and came across a body. Between the victim's eyes were two bullet holes, killed execution style. It was soon confirmed this was the body of a man named Charles Whitehorn, a full-blooded Osage who had been reported missing two weeks prior. On the same day that Charles Whitehorn was found, a boy was squirrel hunting by the creek near Fairfax. Here he spotted a body and it was very hard to tell due to decomposition but it appeared to be the body of a Native American woman. The autopsy later confirmed it was indeed Anna Brown and she had been dead for a week from a gunshot wound to the head. Absolutely devastated, Molly enlisted the help of William Hale to help her bring her sister's killer to justice. The inquest into Anna's murder, however, was not going well. They had no leads and only suspicions. Brian Burkhart told investigators that he was probably the last one to see her and he had dropped her home on the day of her murder about 4.35pm and had heard nothing of her since. Some suspected that Anna's ex-husband, Oda Brown, was to blame. But there was no solid evidence to support this. William Hale promised rewards for anyone who had any information about the killings of either Charles Whitehorn or Anna Brown, stating, we have to stop this bloody business. 
Two months later, in July 1921, Molly's mother passed away too. She had been ill for some time. Bill Smith, who was married to Molly's sister, Rita, had his own suspicions, however. He believed that these deaths were connected. He believed that Lizzie wasn't ill at all, and she was in fact poisoned. The deaths were linked to their valuable head rights, which of course is their rights to the oil money. After all, you could not buy or sell these head rights, but you could inherit them. As the local detectives continued their investigations, more and more suspicious deaths occurred. Soon after it was reported, a young man called William Stepson died suddenly after a suspected poisoning. A month later, an Osage woman had also died suddenly of another suspected poisoning. More and more of these very suspicious deaths were being reported with little to no leads. By this point, the killings seemed to be only happening to members of the Osage and the white man who tried to help them. Local law enforcement were completely terrified at this time because while they were investigating, they were receiving anonymous and very threatening letters warning them to stop looking into the murders. It seemed that anyone who had any information was being hunted down. In August 1922, after a series of more and more and more suspicious deaths, a wealthy oil man named Barney McBride was entrusted to go to Washington to report the killings and urge for an investigation at a federal level. However, along his journey, McBride was captured. He was tied up in a burlap sack was put over his head. McBride was stabbed 20 times and killed. On the 6th of February 1923, another local Osage member, Henry Rowan, was found dead in his car. He was shot in the back of the head. William Hale was the first one who was told of this killing, as he was a very close friend of Henry Rowan. He was a married father of two and he was described as a picturesque, full-blooded Osage Indian, six foot tall and a fine-looking specimen. William Hale served as a pallbearer at the funeral and provided much needed support for his friends and Rowan's grieving family. While the locals were grieving their loss of their beloved husband, friend, father, Hale was dreaming of the massive influx of money he was set to inherit as Hale was the sole beneficiary of Rowan's life insurance policy. After the murder of Henry Rowan, the level of fear of Osage was reaching an all-time high. Locals were under constant threat, wondering who was going to be next. During this time, Bill Smith was very, very outspoken about his suspicions, and they had been growing stronger and stronger with every single killing. Bill and Rita decided to leave their home and move to Fairfax, where they would feel safer. They also got dogs to guard their home. And many Osage ended up doing this as well. They would get dogs to provide them with extra protection. By March 1923, however, the neighborhood dogs were showing up dead as well. They were also being poisoned. Bill and Rita were known around the towns to be the most outspoken during this time, trying all they could to make their beloved county safe for everybody again. On the 9th of March, 1923, Bill, Rita and their young servant, Natty Berkshire, were sleeping peacefully in their beds. At 2.50am, a mighty explosion erupted and blew their home to pieces. 
Unfortunately, Rita and Nettie died immediately, but somehow Bill would die several days later from his injuries in a local hospital. Near death, it was reported that Smith cried out, they got Rita and now it looks like they got me too. After the explosion in the Smith house, the Osage tribal chieftain came forward and said, we must appeal to the White Father in Washington. Our people, once peaceful and happy, are afraid for their lives. No one knows when we will be called to the happy hunting grounds. It was after this outcry that the murders got to a federal, a federal investigation. It, the soon-to-be called the FBI was being run at this time by J. Edgar Hoover. In the summer of 1925, J. Edgar Hoover assigned a man named Tom White as the leading investigator on the case. Tom White was a very, very bright man and eager to do all he could to get to the bottom of the murders. The investigation was so difficult for them to carry out as anyone who had any information was either killed or too scared to come forward. There was so much corruption surrounding these cases, it was so difficult to know who to ask the right questions to. As the investigators were receiving threats, many of the team decided to go undercover dressed as salesmen, insurance men in order to remain safe. According to an FBI report from this time, the Osage distrust of whites was almost universal and agents had to rebuild their confidence in law enforcement. One of the first cases that White and his team looked into was the killing of Anna Brown. At first, this raised more questions than answers, one of which was, where was the bullet that killed Anna? So, as we know, Anna was shot in the head and that was what killed her, but there was no exit wound. White found the coroner's report stating that they had searched for the bullet, but none was found. Of course, this was extremely suspicious. The examining doctors who carried out the autopsy were brothers David and James Sean. This led to investigators questioning, could the doctors be behind it? Investigators got their first break when an elderly farmer came forward and told them that he had seen Anna with Brian Burkhart after he had reportedly dropped her home. It was reported that she was drunk hours into the night and he was trying to get her into his car. So this added Brian to the list of suspects. When the investigating murder of Henry Rowan White found the insurance policy in William Hale's name. This, of course, an obvious motive. Hale was now at the top of the suspect list for this murder. Interviewers were told by insurance salesmen that the tale that Hale said that Rowan was insisted that he become the beneficiary was not true. Further investigation found that it was actually very difficult for Hale to find a doctor to sign off the medical part for such a policy. He did in fact find one doctor who was willing to sign it and that doctor's name was Dr. James Sean, one of the same brothers who did the Anna Brown autopsy. This all exposed an even wider corruption. It was found that the judges would appoint those who had supported them during their elections as overseers as a reward for their service. When any of the overseers funneled Osage money into their own pockets and the case was brought to a judge the judge ignored that case this was discovered to be happening all over the place it was discovered that it was pretty easy for someone who 
was an overseer of an Osage tribe member to gain inheritance to their head rights, and if something had happened to them. The deeper White got, the more he found. White also discovered a trail of different insurance policies for different people and various financial documents, and some of these had been illegally altered to make one individual a beneficiary. And all of this trail led back to one man, William Hale. White was slowly but surely putting the pieces of the puzzle together. He began to see the link between the murders that occurred. Anna, at the time of her death, was not married and had no children. Therefore, if her death occurred, her head rights would be passed to her mother, Lizzie. However, if Lizzie were to also die, both sets of head rights would be split equally between their two surviving daughters, Molly and Rita. However, Rita, we know, and her husband Bill were brutally murdered in an explosion of their house. So this meant that Molly was the last surviving heir to these head rights, which also now included Rita and Bill's, of course. And Molly was married to Ernest, William Hale's beloved nephew. It was at that time that White grew suspicious of the Burkhart brothers, Brian and Ernest. Could the marriage of Molly and Ernest be the beginning of a murder plot? In the autumn of 1925, Molly began to close herself off to the world. She became reclusive. After the horrors she had experienced of losing her entire family, she began to feel ill too. And she confided at the time to a local priest, saying that she thought somebody was trying to poison her as well. The poisonings would occur through the bootleg liquor. Therefore, Molly was advised by the priest to steer clear of this for a while and to see if she felt better. Still no change. Then she grew concerned about the insulin injection she was getting from the local hospital. She was a diabetic. Who were the doctors that supplied Molly with her much-needed insulin? None other than David and James Sean. This was soon reported to White and his team and Molly was taken to a safe hospital and she was no longer receiving insulin from the Sean brothers. And here, Molly's condition improved dramatically. It was clear someone was trying to poison Molly too. It was at this time that agents under White had to act. On January 4th, 1926, warrants for the arrest of William Hale and Ernest Burkhart were issued for the murders of Bill Brown, Rita Brown and Nettie Berkshire, the bombing victims. White and his team began to question Burkhart, hoping that this would get a confession out of them on the night of their arrests. Ernest Burkhart decided he was ready to talk. He explained how he didn't want to be involved at the bombings, but he said that he relied on Uncle Bill's judgment. During this confession, Burkhart mentioned many names of those who were involved, one man in particular, John Ramsey. Burkhart also identified John Ramsey as the trigger man of the Henry Rowan murder, so another suspect was added to the list. After Burkhart's confession, White issued a arrest warrant for John Ramsey, and he was also brought in for questioning. Now, during John Ramsey's interview, he was shown Burkhart's signed confession, to which he responded, I guess it's my neck now, get your pencils. Ramsey explained that Hale was the ringleader of these crimes. It was reported that in his confession, Ramsey admitted to killing Henry Rowan, and he referred to it as 
a little job Hale wanted done. He also reported that he was drinking whiskey with Henry Rowan the night he was killed, stating, The Indian got into his car to leave. I shot him in the back of the head. He also told agents that at the time, white people in Oklahoma thought no more of killing an Indian than they did in 1724. Ramsey also confessed to his involvement in the Smith murders and he implicated two others. These were called Henry Grammer and Isa Kirby. Both Grammer and Kirby died very suspiciously straight after the Smith murders. I've no more information than that, but it's definitely suspicious. When asked about the Anna Brown murder, Burkhart mentioned a man named Kelsey Morrison. He also said there was a third man involved in the Anna Brown murder, but refused to mention who this was. White and his team had already added Brian Burkhart to the list of suspects in the Anna Brown murder as he lied about his the last time he saw her. Assuming the third man was Brian Burkhart and that Ernest just didn't want to implicate his own brother in the murder. During this time, William Hale was questioned many times while in custody and he always maintained his innocence. With Burkhart, Hale and Ramsey in custody, it was time to go to trial. White and his team knew that despite the huge amount of incriminating evidence they had against Hale, it was going to be very difficult to convict him because of his massive influence and very, very powerful friends. In early January 1926, court proceedings began. The New York Times reported, Seldom in the long history of the white man's dubious dealings with Indian has there been such a determined combination of craft and violence as they described by witnesses before the grand jury. The team of lawyers representing Hale, Burkhardt and Ramsey started the trial by recanting the confessions, with Ramsey now stating, I never killed anyone. The lawyers claim that his confession signed both by Burkhardt and Ramsey were done so as a result of being tortured by federal agents. It was clear that his lawyers wanted to try every single trick in the book. An FBI agent reported Hale's team of lawyers employed every device, legal and illegal, to obtain their client's freedom. This left prosecutors extremely concerned. While the trial was going on for Ernest Burkhart, John Ramsey and William Hale, federal investigators brought Brian Burkhart and Kelsey Morrison into custody for their roles in the Anna Brown murder. It was reported that although they had very sus- their suspicions about the Sean brothers, the doctors we mentioned, they didn't have enough evidence at the time to charge them. It was at this point that Ernest changed his mind again. He wanted to tell the truth and change his plea. Ernest Burkhardt had secretly spoken to the prosecuting attorney and he wanted to fire the attorney that Hale had hired for him and hire his own attorney. And he confirmed that White's team had not forced him into a confession anyway and Burkhardt also stated that FBI agents did not coerce or force Ramsey or Hale in any way either. At this point, Ernest Burkhardt changed his plea from innocent to guilty. Between June of 1926 and November of 1929, the defendants were tried in a state and federal court. The trials were incredibly long and drawn out, with deadlock juries, appeals, overturned verdicts, national newspaper coverage and magazine coverage, you name it, it went on. In June 1926, 
In June 1926, Ernest Burkhart was given life in Oklahoma State Penitentiary for his role in the Smith murders. He also turned on his peers and testified against both Hale and Ramsey. William Hale and John Ramsey both received life sentences for the murder of Henry Rowan. Kelsey Morrison confessed to killing Anna Brown at Hale's request and received a life sentence as well. He was already serving time for another crime he did while he was sentenced. Despite his confession for his involvement in the Anna Brown murder, Brian Burkhart was given immunity as he testified against Hale and Morrison. John Ramsey was paroled in 1947. Ernest Burkhart was paroled in 1937, but he soon robbed a bank and was sent back to prison until 1959 when he was released again. He lived the rest of his life in a trailer with his brother, Brian. William Hale still maintains his innocence. Despite having the biggest part to play in all of the murders, Hale was released on parole earliest. As part of his parole, Hale was not allowed back into the state of Oklahoma. During the trials, Molly's divorced Ernest. She soon remarried in 1928, and it wasn't until 1931 that Molly was deemed legally competent to look after her own affairs. In 1937, Molly died at the age of 50. This is a story of greed and systemic racism. It is merely the tip of the iceberg. Horrendously, these murders don't even come close to the real number of murders which happened during this time. And to this day, they are still unknown. There are so many, many more victims and perpetrators in this story. There was so much that I had to leave out because of time. But if you are interested in this story, I do recommend you read the book, The Killing of the Flower Moon by David Graham. I will end off this episode with a quote from the book. In April, millions of tiny flowers spread over blackjack hills and vast prairies in the Osage territory of Oklahoma. There are Johnny Jumps and Spring Beauties and Little Bluets. The Osage writer John Joseph Matthews observed that a galaxy of petals makes it look as though God has left confetti. In May, when the coyotes howl beneath the unnervingly large moon, taller plants such as spiderworts and black-eyed Susans began to creep tinier blooms stealing their light and water. The necks of the smaller flowers break and their petals flutter away, and before long they are buried underground. This is why the Osage Indians refer to May as the time of the flower-killing moon. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. I will see you in two weeks time.